let's start just what drives you. What, what is it that when you wake up in the morning, do you see a problem and you want to solve it? Yeah. Uh, I, I think the, the, the thing that uh, drives me is that uh, I want to be able to think about the future and uh, you know, feel good about that. Um, so uh, that uh, you know, we're doing what we can to uh, have the future be, be as good as possible. Um, to be inspired by what is likely to happen, um, and to look forward to the next day. Um, so that's that's what really really drives me is 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 trying to figure out uh, how do we how to make sure that things are great and um, and going to be so, and um, that's the underlying principle behind uh, Tesla and SpaceX um, is that. Um, I think it's, it's, it's pretty important that we accelerate the transition to uh, sustainable generation and consumption of energy. Um, it, it's inevitable, but it's, it matters if, we ha if it happens sooner or later. Um, and then SpaceX is about um, helping make life multiplanetary um, and doing what we can to continue the, the dream of Apollo um, and uh, ultimately make a contribution to life becoming multiplanetary. But the overall objective of Tesla is really what set of actions can we take to accelerate the advent of sustainable production and consumption of energy? Um, and um, I think the, the, the sort of, the way, the way I would assess the historic good of Tesla is in terms of, of, how, of what that, how many years of acceleration was it? You know, and if we can, accelerate sustainable energy by 10 years, I would consider that to be a great success. Hope, even if it was only five years, that would still be pretty good. Um, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the overarching optimization. So you, you've talked about interplanetary travel and sustainable energy and the vehicles a little bit. What, what would you want things to look like in five to 10 years associated with, with energy sure. and with autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles? Hmm. Well, I think things are going to be, they're going to grow exponentially. So there's a big difference between five and 10 years. Um, you know, my, my guess is, uh, yeah, probably in 10 years, more than a half of uh, new vehicle um, production is electric in the United States. Um, and China's probably gonna be ahead of that because China's been super pro-EV. Um, I don't think a lot of people know this, but like, I mean, China's environmental policies are way ahead of the US. Like their mandate for renewable energy far exceeds the US. I think this, sometimes people are under the impression that China is uh, either dragging their feet or, or somehow behind the U.S. in terms of um, sustainable energy promotion, but they're, they're by far the most aggressive on Earth. It's crazy. I mean, like, in fact, the uh, coalition of Chinese car manufacturers just wrote the Chinese government to beg for them to slow down the mandate because hmm. it's like too much. They, they need to make 8% electric vehicles, I think, like next year or in two years or something. Just, like, they can't physically do it. 
Um, so China's by far the most aggressive on um, electric vehicles and solar. Um, so, um, but that's a common misperception that they're not. Um, there's one Google search way to figure this out, by the way, it's really pretty straight, pretty easy. So, and in, ten, in ten, yeah, 10 years, man, I think, yeah, yeah. So ha half of all production, I think, will be, be EV. I think almost all cars produced will be autonomous in 10 years. Almost all. It will be rare to find one that is not in 10 years. Um, that's going to be a huge transformation. Um, now, the thing to bear in mind, though, is that new vehicle production is only about 5% the size of the vehicle fleet. So you think about how long does a car or truck last? And they last 15 to 20 years. So before they're finally scrapped. So new vehicle production is only roughly one, at, at most one fifteenth of the, the fleet size. So even when new vehicle production, say, switches, those, switches over to electric or to autonomous, that still means the vast majority of the fleet on the roads is not. It'll take another you know, five to 10 years before that becomes majority, the majority of the fleet becomes EV or uh, uh, autonomous. Um, but if you were to say go out 20 years, overwhelmingly things are electric autonomous, overwhelmingly. Fully autonomous? Fully autonomous. So no one will have to touch the steering wheel if there is one? There will not be a steering wheel. <laughs> In 20 years, um, it will be like having a horse. People have horses. Which is cool, um, but so so having uh, a regular car will be like having a horse. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there will be people that have that have, you know, non-autonomous cars. Like people have horses. <laughs> it just would be unusual to use that as a mode of transport. Yes. All right. Now, let's talk about um, the energy piece and rooftop solar and storage. Um, yeah, um, so the, uh, I mean, first of all, it's a <clears throat> important to appreciate that the Earth is almost entirely solar powered today um, in the sense that the sun is the only thing that keeps us from um, being at roughly the temperature of cosmic background radiation, which is three degrees above absolute zero. If it wasn't for a sun, we'd be a frozen dark uh, ice bowl. Um, and the, uh, the amount of so the amount of energy that hits the sun that reaches us from the sun is tremendous. It's it's over, it's the it's 99% plus of all energy that, that Earth has. Um, then there's, there's 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 this energy we need to use to run civilization, which to us is big, but compared to the amount of energy that reaches us from the sun is tiny. Um, so it, it, it's very easy. Like it actually doesn't take much. If, if, you, if you wanted to power the entire United States with solar panels, um, it would take um, a, a fairly small corner of Nevada, Texas, Utah, anywhere. Uh, look, you, it's, it, you only need about 100 miles by 100 miles of solar panels to power the entire United States. Um, and then the, the batteries you need to store that energy to make sure you have 24 7. Um, uh, power is uh, one mile by one mile. One, one square mile. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, it. That's, that's it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, I showed the graph of the, or, or image of this where uh, this is what 100 miles by 100 miles looks like. It's like you know, a little square on the US map. Um, and then one, there's a little pixel inside there, and that's the size of the battery pack that you need to support that. Real tiny. So, Will, you, you talked about 20 years from now, none of us, well, some people will still be using horses or. or it won't be zero. Yeah. But it's so, too rare. So, what will the, the energy piece look like? I mean, what, will there be transmission lines? Will there mm -hmm. be a need? Yeah, I think the. So, there's. The use of energy can, is roughly divided into three areas. Um, and they're more or less equal um, at, a, at a high level. Um, there's about a third of energy is used for transportation of various kinds. About a third is used uh, for electricity. About a third is used for heating. So if you want to have, uh, and, and of, of, of the electricity production, call it you know, something on the order of 10%, depending upon how you count it, is renewable. Maybe 15% um, uh, today. So th that means that there's a massive amount of solar that would need, need to be produced um, and connected in order to, to be fully sustainable. Because fully sustainable means you're tackling transport, um, non-renewable electricity generation, and heating. Um, so that, that means there will need to be a combination of utility scale solar and rooftop scale solar combined with uh, wind, geothermal, uh, hydro, probably some, some nuclear for a while um, in order to transition to a sustainable uh, situation, um, which means really for the most part massive, massive growth in solar. Um, and it's, it's going to be important to have rooftop solar in uh, neighborhoods, um, because otherwise you're gonna, there'll need to be uh, massive new transmission lines built. And people do not like having transmission lines go through the neighborhood. They really don't like that. And I agree. <laughs> so um, so you, you want to have some localized energy uh, production um, combined with utility. It's, so you want rooftop solar, utility solar, um, and uh, that, that's, that's really going to be the solution from a physics standpoint, but I can't see any other way to really do it. Um, um, people talk a lot about fusion and all that, but the, the sun is a giant fusion reactor in the sky, and it's really reliable. It comes up every day. Um, <laughs> so if it doesn't, we've got bigger problems. <laughs> uh, somebody asked me to ask you this. We, we talked about workforce today, but they asked me, are robots going to take our jobs, everybody's jobs in the future? Or how, how much do you see artificial intelligence coming into the, the workplace? Um, well, first of all, I, I think on the artificial intelligence front, um, you know, I, I have exposure to the very, the very most cutting edge um, AI. Um, uh, and I think people should be really concerned about it. Um, I keep sounding the alarm bell, but you know, until people see like robots going down the street killing people, like they don't know how to react, you know, because it seems so ethereal. Um, and um, I think we should be really concerned about AI. And I think we should. This is, AI is a rare case where I think we need to be proactive in regulation instead of reactive. 
um, because I think by the time we are reactive in AI regulation, it's too late. Um, and no normally the way regulations are set up is that a whole bunch of bad things happen, there's a public outcry, the, the, and then after many years, a regulatory agency is set up to regulate that industry. Um, and there's a bunch of opposition from companies who don't like being told what to do by regulators. Um, anyway, it takes forever. Um, that, that in the past ha has been bad, but not um, something which represented a, uh, you know, a fundamental risk to the existence of civilization. AI is a fundamental risk to the existence of human civilization. Um, in a way that car accidents, uh, airplane crashes, um, faulty drugs, uh, or, or bad food were, were not. They were, not they, they were harmful to, to uh, a set of individuals within society, of course, but they were not harmful to society as a whole. Um, AI is a fundamental existential risk for human civilization. And I don't think people fully appreciate that. Um, you know, it's not, it's not fun being regulated. It's not, you know, uh, it can be pretty irksome. But, uh, you know, in the car business, we, you know, we get regulated uh, by Department of Transport, by EPA, and a bunch of others. Um, and, and there's regulatory agencies in every, every country. You know, in, the, in space, the, we get regulated by FAA. Um, and... Um, but, but you know, if you ask the average person, hey, you wanna, do you want to get rid of the FAA um, and just like take a, take a chance on manufacturers not cutting corners on the aircraft because uh, you know, profits were down that quarter? Uh, I was like, eh, hell no. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think even people who are pretty, you know, extremely like libertarian free market, they'd be like, yeah, we should probably have somebody keeping an eye on the aircraft companies, making sure they build a good aircraft um, and good cars and that kind of thing. So, you know, I think there's, there's a role for regulators. Um, that's very important. Um, and I'm against over-regulation, for sure. Uh, but, man, we've, I think we better get on that with AI, Prano. Um, and uh, so, so there'll certainly be a lot of job disruption. Um, because what's gonna happen is robots will be able to do everything better than us. I'm, inclu I'm including, I mean, all of us, you know? Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what to do about this. <laughs> um, it's like the, it's the like, it, this is really like the scariest problem to me, I'll tell you. Um, and um, yeah, so, I really think we need government regulation here just to, because this is, you know, ensuring the public good is served. Because you've got companies that are racing, that they kind of have to race to build AI, or they're going to be uh, made uncompetitive. You know, like, the, essentially, if your competitor is racing to build AI and you don't, they will crush you. So then you're like, ah, we don't want to be crushed. So, uh, you know, I guess we need to build it too. Um, that's where you need the regulators to come in and say, hey guys, um, you all need to really, you know, just 
pause and make sure this is safe. And like when, when it's cool and, we're and the regulators are convinced that it's safe to proceed, then you can go. But otherwise, slow down. Um, and, but, slow, but you kind of need the regulators to do that for, for all the teams in the game. You know, uh, otherwise the shareholders will be saying like, hey, why aren't you developing AI faster? Um, because your competitor is. I'm like, oh, okay, we better do that. Um, Anyway, so it's like, I mean, there's like something like 12% of jobs are transport. Transport will be one of the first things to go fully autonomous. But when I say everything, like the robots will be able to do everything, bar, bar nothing. Well, um, I wanted to give an opportunity for some of the governors to ask questions and perhaps some audience questions. Um, I, I was told that you'd be willing to, yeah, to do absolutely. that. Great. So, uh, Governors, any questions for, for Elon? Governor Scott. Well, thank you very much. Um, we in Vermont have uh, partnered with Tesla in, uh, in terms of a power pack in, in our homes. And it's yeah. for $15 a day. Uh, you can rent this for 15 years, and it'll, it'll carry power as a backup generation device for 12 hours. And it's been really, really interesting from my perspective. Uh, but I'm curious about vehicles in and where we're going in the future, uh, or how far in the future, do the cars themselves become uh, the charging device, like the, the roof and deck lids and, and uh, hood? Or, does, or do the batteries get so efficient that you don't need that, and then you just power up for a week or something like that? Where are we going in the future with battery storage? Yeah, I think the future is it's, there's just there's three legs to the stool. Uh, there's uh, electric cars. There's a stationary battery pack um, and solar power. Uh, with those three things, you can have a completely sustainable energy future. Uh, that's, all, that's all that's needed. On the, sol on the solar front, like I said, uh, it's going to be a combination of rooftop solar and utility scale solar. Um, you'll need both because of the you know, enormous demand for electricity. Um, and then uh, you know, one of the things that's, that's been missing, I think, up till now is having rooftop solar that looks good um, and isn't an, uh, you know, um, that, that's where we've got the, the solar glass roof that we're developing, um, and we're doing it in different styles so that it, it you know it matches the aesthetics of a, of a particular house or um, so regional style. Um, that's I think that's actually pretty important. Um, and um, the conventional flat panel solars will, will, for, for flat roofs and for commercial will be uh, the way the way to go. Um, but yeah, it's, and, and, and putting solar panels on the, on the car itself, not that, uh, not that helpful because the actual surface area of the car is not, not very much, and cars are very often indoors. Um, and so it's the least efficient place to put solar is on the car. Just wondering about maybe a wrap of some sort. Does that, does that make any sense in the future, like a, a wrap of solar around either a building made of a solar panel or a wrap of a of a vehicle actually being the solar panel, but being the, the components of the vehicle itself? I, I don't think so. Um, I'll scrap that idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, just, uh, it's just way better to put it on a roof, uh, for sure. Um, and I've, I've really thought about this. I mean, really, and I pushed my team about, like, isn't there some way we could do it on the car? Um, I mean, the, the, technically, if you have, like, some sort of transformer-like thing which will pop out of the trunk like, like, a, you know, like a hard top convertible and just like, like ratchet solar panels over the whole surface area of the car 
extending like for the entire, say, uh, square footage of a parking space, um, provided you're in the sun, uh, that would be enough to generate about 20 to 30 miles a day of electricity. But uh, that is for sure the expensive, difficult way to do it. <laughs> Governor Berga. Still thought about it. Maybe we should. But. Elon, thank, thanks for being here. Uh, with your background in payment systems, uh, you understand uh, the important role of uh, security and transactions. Uh, yeah. Now that you've got... I, I think security is a huge concern. Like cybersecurity? Yes, and, you're in, in a, in a, in the vehicles you're building now are incredibly complex software systems. I mean, the car is really yep. a rolling piece of software. It is. It's like a laptop on wheels. Yes. So uh, share with us a little bit about uh, your thoughts on cybersecurity and how, you, how, how, how we protect... Uh, you talk about protecting society when uh, yep. you've got a rolling fleet of... Um, I, I think one of the biggest uh, risks for autonomous vehicles is somebody achieving um, a fleet-wide hack. Um, you know, in principle, if, if somebody was able to hack, say, all of the autonomous Teslas, they could say, I mean, just as a prank, they could say, like, send them all to Rhode Island <laughs> from across the United States. <laughs> and they'd be like, well, okay. That would be the end of Tesla. <laughs> um, and <laughs> there'll be a lot of angry people in Rhode Island, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, so uh, we've got to make super sure that, uh, that a fleet-wide hack is basically impossible and that if people are in the car, that they have uh, override authority on uh, whatever the car is doing. So if the car is doing something wacky, uh, you can press a button that no amount of software can override that will ensure that the uh, you, you, you gain control of the vehicle um, and kind of cut, cut the link to the servers. Um, so that's, uh, that's pretty fundamental. Um, within the car, we actually have, even if somebody gains access to the car, there are multiple subsystems within the car that, that, that also have uh, specialized encryption. So the powertrain, for example, has specialized encryption. So even if somebody would gain access to the car, they cannot gain access to the powertrain or to the braking system. Um, and, um, but it is my top, top concern from a security standpoint at Tesla is making sure that fleet-wide hack or any vehicle-specific hack can occur. The, the same, the, they have the same problem with cell phones. Um, you know, uh, if we're, it's, it's kind of crazy today that we live quite uh, comfortably in, in, a, in a world that George Orwell would have thought was super crazy. Um, like, we, we, we all carry... Um, a phone with a, with, with a microphone that can be turned on really at any time without our knowledge with a GPS that knows our position um, and a camera um, and uh, well kind of all of our personal information. Um, we do this um, willingly um, and uh, it's kind of wild to think that that's the case. Um, so so pho the, the phone like Apple and, and uh, Google kind of have the same challenge of making sure there cannot be a fleet-wide hack or, or a system-wide hack of phones um, or, or a specific hack. So that, that's our top, our top concern. Um, yeah, it become a, it's going to become a bigger and bigger concern. It, I think Tesla's, um, I don't want to have fate here, but Tesla's, Tesla's pretty good at software compared to the other car companies. Um, and um, so I do think it's going to be a bit, 
like an even bigger challenge for, for the other car companies to ensure security. Yeah. Thank you. Governor Dugard. Thank you, Governor. Uh, Mr. Musk, thank you for speaking to all the governors today. It's, it's an honor to have you here. Uh, one question I had, uh, we saw when gasoline prices went to three and a half dollars a gallon, there was a big jump in interest in hybrid vehicles, sure. and, and uh, you saw those vehicles become very much in demand, and then as gasoline prices have fallen, you've seen a reversal of that. And I'm wondering to what extent uh, you have a concern about the future of electric vehicles in the face of those very low prices. Can you speak to that? Well, the, the economics, um, uh, they, they, they kind of set, set the slope of the, the, the curve. Um, so there's no question in my mind whatsoever that all transport, with the ironic exception of rockets, will go fully electric. Um, Everything, um, planes, trains, automobiles, well, tra a lot of trains are already electric, um, all, all ships, um, and, um, it's, but it's a question of what that time frame is. And the economic uh, incentive structure drives that time frame. Um, that's really what it amounts to. Um, You know, there's, there's the, 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 and the big challenge is that there's an unpriced externality in the cost of fossil fuels. Uh, so, the un unpriced externality is the uh, the the probably weighted uh, harm that, of changing the chemical constituency of the uh, atmosphere and oceans. Um, it, it's, it's since it is not captured in the price of gasoline. Um, it does not uh, drive the right behavior. Um, you know, it would be like uh, if tossing out garbage was just free and, you know, there was no penalty. You just do as much as you want. Then, like, streets would be full of garbage. Um, so, um, and we, we regulated a lot of other things like sulfur emissions and nitrous oxide emissions and that kind of thing. It's done, done a lot of good on that front. Um, with CO2, it's tough because there's so many vested interests on the sort of fossil fuel side. Um, and sometimes I think I feel like those guys feel like kind of hard done by because, uh, um, you know, it wasn't obvious like when they were creating their oil and gas companies that it would be bad for the environment. Um, and they worked really hard to create those companies. And then they feel like, well, now they're being kind of attacked on moral grounds. Um, when they didn't originally start those oil companies or, or, or build them up on, on bad moral grounds. Um, and, and, and it is true that we cannot instantaneously change to a sustainable situation. Um, but then those guys will also fight pretty hard to slow down the change. And that's really where I think is morally wrong. Governor Bevin and then De Governor Hutchinson. Then we'll take a couple, oh, and then Governor Hickenlooper, and then we'll take some audience questions. Governor Bevin. Elon, thank you for being here. Uh, short version of the question, then slightly longer. The short version is, do you ever feel pressure by others' expectations of you and your endeavors in light of the progress you've made thus far, is the short version. And, and, and more specifically, when you look just at Tesla alone, and you look at a company with a $54 billion valuation, uh, right. And seemingly, by typical market metrics, 
no justifiable reason for that. What are you saying? Does, I'm just saying, I'm <laughs> sir. curious. Sir. I'm just, in all seriousness, do you feel a, a, a concern ever that your intellect and your intellectual curiosity and your ingenuity cannot be matched by those that are trying to commercialize it? Does that ever affect how you think or decisions that you make? Uh, well, it, it is actually, I find it quite uh, tough um, when there are very high expectations. Um, I try to actually tamp down those expectations as you know, to be possible. In fact, I've gone on record several times as saying that the stock price is higher than we have any right to deserve. Um, uh, and that's for sure true based on you know, where we are today and have been in the past. So the stock price obviously ref reflects a lot of optimism about where Tesla will be in the future. Um, and now the, the thing that makes that um, you know, quite a difficult emotional hardship for me uh, is, is that you know, those expectations sometimes get out of, out of control. And I'm like, I hate disappointing people. Um, and so I'm like trying real hard to meet those expectations, but that's pretty tall order. Um, and uh, a lot of times it's real not, really not fun. I have to say, a whole lot less fun than it may seem. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't ever sell any stock unless I have to for, for taxes. Um, so, you know, I've said publicly, I'm not going to, like, take money off the table. You know, I'll be last. I'm going down with, I'm going down with the ship. So, uh, I'll be the last to do it. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, oh, I really wouldn't recommend anyone start a card company. <laughs> I really wouldn't recommend <laughs> it. It's not a recipe for happiness and freedom. <laughs> Thanks, Governor Bevan. Governor Hutchinson. Mr. Musk, uh, Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas, thank you for your uh, frank observations about uh, exploration. Uh, you know, I look at uh, the spirit of in uh, invention and the spirit of exploration, which is really the hallmark of America. What is your comment on NASA, its mission? I was in Congress, I supported NASA, but I always feel like it's floundering, does not have the support of the American people that's needed. Uh, what, uh, what's your comment on NASA, its mission, and what advice would you give us? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I should say I'm a big fan of NASA. Um, in fact, at one point, my password was, I love NASA. Um, <laughs> literally, that was my password. Um, um, and, um, you know, I think the, um, NASA, NASA does a lot of good things for which, for which it doesn't get enough credit um, and that the public, I guess, doesn't know that much about. Um, like a lot, you know, most members of the public, they're not really into hard science, you know. It's like not, it's not the, the thing they're tuning in for most of the time. Um, I love hard science, you know, uh, but uh, um, it's not that popular. So, uh, but there's great things in terms of the, the telescopes like the Hubble and the James Webb and the, you know, the rovers on Mars um, and uh, the pro, you know, probes to the outer solar system. 
Um, those are all like really great things. Um, but to get the public excited, you've got to get people in the picture. Um, it just, it's just a hundred times different if there are people in the picture. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if there's some criticism of NASA, it's like, I, it's like important to remember people in the picture, you know, if you want to get the public support. Um, and, um, but, but like, if, if you talk to a scientist about that, they say, like, well, where's the science in that? Like, you're not getting it. It's like, that's not why people are giving you money. <laughs> it's not, that's, I mean, it's a little bit of the reason, but uh, the, the, like the, the, the serious scientists are like, people just make things more expensive. Uh, like, why do we have people? Like, okay, well, why do we have people at all? <laughs> or anywhere? Um, sometimes the scientists are the ones who just don't, don't understand. Um, even they're like smart people, but like, you know. Um, so you gotta have something that's gonna fire up the, you know, fire, fire people up and get them really excited. And like, I think if we had a serious goal of having a base on the moon and sending people to Mars um, and said, okay, this is, we're gonna be outcome oriented. How are we gonna do this? Okay, we gotta change the way contracting is done. Uh, you can't do these like cost plus contracts, cost plus sole source contracts, because then the incentive structure is all messed up. So uh, as soon as you don't have any competition, well, okay, there's no sense of urgency goes away. And as soon as you make something a cost plus contract, you're incenting the contractor to maximize the costs of the program because they get a percentage. So they never want that gravy train to end, and they want to make it, a, it ends a, it, they become cost maximizers. Um, and then you have good people engaged in cost maximization because you just gave them incentive to do that <laughs> and told them they'll get punished if they don't. Essentially, that's what happens. So it's critically important that we change the contracting structure to be a um, competitive commercial bid. Make sure that there are, or, there are always two, at least two entities um, that, that are competing to serve NASA um, and that the contracts are milestone-based with, with uh, concrete milestones. PowerPoint presentations do not count. Um, like everything works in PowerPoint. Okay. <laughs> you can say, I have a teleportation device. Look, here's my PowerPoint presentation. Um, so uh, milestone-based competitive uh, commercial contracts with, with competitors, and then, and then you've got to be prepared to fire one of those competitors if they're not, if they're not cutting it and, and recompete the rest of the remainder of that contract. And by the way, NASA's actually already done this. And they did it with the, with the uh, commercial cargo uh, transportation to the space station. Um, and that was a case where NASA, you know, the NASA actually, I'm not sure if they thought it would work or not work, but they didn't have the budget to do anything else. So they're like, okay, we're going to try this competitive commercial milestone-based contracting, and it worked great. Um, and they awarded it uh, to two companies, to, to SpaceX and a company called Kistler. And SpaceX managed to meet, meet the milestones. Kistler did not. So then they, NASA recompeted the remainder of the contract to uh, Orbital Sciences. But then Orbital Sciences got across the finish line. So now NASA's got two suppliers for uh, taking cargo to the space station. Um, and it's a great situation. Same thing for co commercial crew to the space station. NASA competed that. Um, uh, in, in, in the commercial crew case, it's SpaceX and Boeing. Um, and I think that's also a good situation. So now, um, like, I can tell you, like, the SpaceX team is like, we're going to 
do this before Boeing. That's for sure. <laughs> and then, like, I read out the Boeing team, they're like, we're going to do this before SpaceX. Um, that's good. That's a, it's a good forcing function to get things done. That, that, I can't tell you how important that contracting structure is. That is night and day. Um, there's way too much uh, in, in government which is uh, where it's a sole source uh, cost plus contract. Um, that, that just, in, again, economics 101, whatever you incent, well, that will happen. And people shouldn't be surprised. It's like, oh, you just, you know, said, okay, if, if that company manages to find some excuse to double the cost of the contract, they're going to get double the profit because they're getting a percentage. So they're going to do, they can do exactly that. Um, and, and also, they're not going to say no to requirements. So the government will come up with some set of requirements. 90% of them could make a lot of sense, and 10% of them are cockamamie that double the, the, the price of the, of, the, of, the, of the project. For those 10% of cockamamie <laughs> requirements in a cost plus contract, the contractor will always say yes. There could be a future for you in, in government contracting at the state level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Governor Hickenlooper and then Governor Ducey. So then, uh, I think like most governors, I, I find it so refreshing to have the unbridled truth. But I do suspect every time you say publicly that the stock price is higher than we have any right to believe, I, I'm going to guess you probably get some calls from investors suggesting that maybe you don't say that so frequently. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I wanted to go back and just, just briefly, because I think I, I wrote this down, that you said that uh, artificial intelligence is the, the fundamental existential risk facing civilization, did I get that close I enough? Think, I, in, in my opinion, it is, it is the biggest risk that we face as a civilization is artificial intelligence. And so, to a group of leaders, what would you advise that we should, how should we be addressing something that's, that's a, such a large landscape and yet obviously so important? Um, I think that the, you know, one of the roles of government is to ensure the public good um, it, and, and to, uh, that dangers to the, the, the public are addressed. Um, so that, hence the regulatory thing. I think the, the first order of business would be to try to learn as much as possible, you know, to understand the nature of the issues, to um, look closely at the progress that is being made um, and the remarkable um, achievements of artificial intelligence. Um, I mean, last year, uh, uh, Go, which is a, quite a difficult game to beat, um, that people thought would never be beaten with, uh, um, by, by a computer, that, that, that a computer would either never beat the best human player or that it was 20 years away. Um, and last year, um, uh, AlphaGo, which was done by DeepMind, which is a kind of a Google subsidiary, um, absolutely crushed the world's best player. Um, and now, now, that now it can crush, it can play the top 50 simultaneously and crush them all. So, just like that pace of progress is remarkable. Um, and um, and you can see more and more coming out, like the robotics. Uh, you can see robots that can learn to walk from, from nothing, um, you know, within hours, like way faster than any biological being. Um, um, but the, the, the thing that's uh, most dangerous is, uh, and, and it's the hardest to kind of wrap, um, kind of 
get your arms around because it's not a physical thing is kind of a deep intelligence in the network. Um, and you say, well, what harm could a deep intelligence in the network do? So, well, I could start a war um, by, create, by doing fake news and spoofing email accounts and fake press releases and just by you know, manipulating information. The pen is mightier than the sword. Um, so, uh, I mean, as an example, I want to be, I want to emphasize, I do not think this actually occurred. This is purely a hypothetical that I, <laughs> I'm digging my grave here. Um, <laughs> um, but you know that, like that, there was that second Malaysian airliner that was shot down uh, on the uh, Ukrainian-Russian border. Um, and that, that really amplified tensions between Russia and the, the EU um, in, in a massive way. Well, uh, like, let's say if, if you had uh, an AI that was, uh, where the AI's goal was to maximize the value of a portfolio of stocks, um, one of the ways to maximize value would be to uh, go uh, long on defense, short on consumer, start a war. Um, and then uh, how could it do that? Well, you know, hacking into the Malaysian Airlines uh, 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 aircraft routing server, route it over a war zone, um, then send an anonymous tip that an enemy uh, aircraft is flying overhead right now. Let's go to Governor Ducey and then <laughs> we'll have after Governor Ducey, we'll finish our uh, gubernatorial questions and then two questions and we quick questions or one audience question and then we'll be done. We're, we're running short on time. Governor Ducey. Thanks, Elon. I really enjoyed your comments today. And as someone who has spent a lot of time in his administration trying to reduce and eliminate regulations, uh, I was surprised by your suggestion to bring reg regulations before we know exactly what we're dealing with with mm -hmm. AI. <clears throat> you know, and I've, I've heard the example used uh, if I were to come up with a colorless, odorless, uh, tasteless gas that was explosive, people would say, well, you have to ban that, and then we'd have no natural gas. So you've given some of these examples of how AI can be an existential threat, but I still don't understand as policymakers what type of regulations beyond slow down, which typically um, policymakers don't get in, in front of entrepreneurs or innovators? Well, I think the first order of business would be to gain insight. Right now, the government does not even have insight. Um, and uh, I think the, the right order of business would be to stand up a regulatory agency, initial goal, gain insight into the status of um, AI activity, um, uh, make sure it, the situation is, is understood, um, once it is, then put regulations in place to ensure public safety. That's it. Um, and for sure, the companies doing AI will, well, most of them, not mine, uh, will squawk and say, hey, uh, this is really going to stifle innovation, blah, 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 it's going to move to China. It won't. Um, and uh, it won't because like, it's like, has, like, has Boeing moved to China? Nope. They're pulling aircraft here. Um, uh, same on, on cars, um, and so uh, it's not. It's um, the, the notion that if you establish a regulatory regime, that companies will just simply move to um, 
countries with, with lower regulatory requirements is, is false on the face of it because none of them do. Unless it's really overbearing, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm just talking about, you know, making sure that there is awareness at the government level. Um, I think once there is awareness, people will be extremely afraid, as they should be. All right, one audience question. We'll take the first hand that came up. All right here. Thanks, Elon. Inafried with Axios. Early on in this administration, you had argued pretty vociferously that it was best to engage and better to be in the room than not be in the room. Uh, then when the president decided to pull out of Paris, you said that was kind of the last straw and you were going to drop off. Mm -hmm. What drove you to that? And if you were still speaking to him today, what would you say to the president? Well, I, I thought it was worth uh, doing, you know, trying hard to... Um, you know, to, to do what's worth, it was worth trying. I got a lot of flack from, from multiple fronts for even trying. Um, when some guy ran at billboards and like uh, attacking me and like full page ads in the New York Times and whatnot, um, just, for, just for being on the panel. Um, and, and you know, in every, in every meeting I was like just trying to make the arguments um, in favor of sustainability um, and uh, you know, sometimes other issues like we need to make sure that our immigration laws are not unkind or unreasonable um, and uh, you know did my best and I, I think in a few cases I did actually make some progress which gave me uh, some encouragement to continue um, but, but then I just really think that the Paris Accord man I I'm, I'm, if I stayed on the councils, then I'd be essentially saying that that wasn't important, but it was super important um, because I think a country needs to keep its word. Um, and, you know, that, that's, it's not even a binding agreement. So we could always, like, slow it down. Um, you know, the, the argument that there would be job losses, well, we could see if there are job losses before we exit the agreement. Maybe there won't be job losses. Maybe there'll be job gains. Um, but yeah, there's just no way I could stay on after that. <laughs> so, you know, did my best. All right. All right. Well, everybody, if you would please join me in thanking Elon for being here today. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.